Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. We're continuing our series where we've been in on the book of Romans. I've been away for a couple of weeks, and you've had some amazing messages while I was gone from Jeff Clark and Christian Shippey. I was just listening to them on the way over here in the car. Actually, I got here late. I apologize. My wife's out of town, so I was supposed to bring the food today. And I drove into the parking lot, and somebody walked up to my car, said, I'm here to help you with the food. I said, oh, my God, the food. <laughs> so I had to drive all the way back home, and all, get the food, and all the way back, so I apologize. But you will have something to eat. <laughs> so today's part seven of the book of our series on Romans. We're going through chapter by chapter. And today I'm going to look at the cross and what I'm calling the healing of guilt. Uh, So let's look together at excerpts from Romans chapter 5, beginning in Romans 5, verse 1. And Paul says this, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we learned about this in the first four chapters of of Romans, uh, that we've been justified by faith, therefore we have peace, we have shalom with God through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And dropping down. Uh, you see, just at the right time, when, when we were still powerless, Messiah died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die, even for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Mashiach, Messiah, died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more, Kovachomer, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Amen? Well, this famous passage, uh, among other things, emphasizes the relationship between the, the cross and forgiveness. The Yeshua died for our forgiveness. Now, if you go to college today, and, you, and a lot of times you're required to take all these introductory courses, uh, if you take Psychology 101, uh, one of the books that they typically assign, at least was assigned back in my day, is this very basic overview called 36 Different Systems of Psychotherapy. Anyone ever read that book in Psych, Psych 101? Well, okay, well, I have. <laughs> uh, and each system of these 36 systems focuses on its own a uh, key problem of the human soul that it thinks is the root problem of, of, of all the human condition. Uh, and, and interestingly, almost all these 36 different systems identify a similar root problem. But they all use different words for it. So some, some call it low self-esteem, poor self-worth, bad self-image, sense of failure, and so on. So I guess the takeaway is if you want to invent your own psychotherapy, You've got to create first your own jargon. That's how you make a name for yourself. You develop your own jargon that nobody else understands, and you teach it to other people in expensive courses. <laughs> and then you, once you learn the jargon, then you can market it yourself as a professional expert in the area. And that's the way a lot of these disciplines work, including psychotherapy. They make up their own insider vocabulary. Uh, so, for example, they have this term they've coined, dis-ease. Have you heard that one? Uh, all these different words, though, basically are talking about the same thing. Guilt. Guilt is pervasive in humanity. From the fall of Adam on, 
uh, far more pervasive than we want to believe. You know, 100 years ago, it was a, deemed a good thing to feel guilty. Uh, it showed you were a civilized person. Uh, it was considered good to experience guilt. It meant you had a conscience. It meant your heart was not hardened. But today, everything's flipped around. Today, our culture says people who feel guilty are immature and uptight and repressed and, and, and messed up. Uh, uh, to be racked with guilt t- today shows you don't have it together. You're not liberated uh, and free. So there's this great pressure not to admit how pervasive guilt is. We don't want to admit how much guilt uh, there is in our life. You know, if all our problems in our life uh, are, are rocks, uh, and if we had the guts to pull these rocks up, we'd find little guilt worms crawling underneath those rocks. Now, dare to look under your anxieties, under your anger, under your bitterness, under your defensiveness uh, to criticism when you can't take criticism. It's often associated with guilt, secret guilt you don't want to admit or face or confront or let anybody else know about. Guilt is hiding under a lot of our problems. It's like an oil leak under the surface of the water. You can't quite tell where the leak is coming from. You just know the water is very foul and dirty. We all have a guilty conscience. Some of us realize it more than others. So what do we do about it? How do you have a guilt-free life? Well, this passage today tells us that the issue of faith, belief in the Messiah, has resources for dealing with guilt that are absolutely unparalleled in any other philosophy or religion or system. In this passage, in Romans 5, it's going to tell us three things we put on the overhead uh, about guilt. Number one, the feeling of guilt, what we feel inside of us. Number two, the dealing of guilt, how God deals with it. And number three, the healing of guilt. Uh, the feeling, the dealing, and the healing of guilt. And because I made all this rhyme today, you have double my pay. <laughs> uh, so number one, the feeling of guilt. What is it? Uh, interestingly, my feeling of my, think about this. My feeling of guilt is the realization that my guilt and my wrongdoing is more than just a feeling. Hmm? That's what guilt feelings are. You know, in the 20th century, uh, psychologists try to tell us that guilt, oh, it's just a feeling. Uh, it has no objective basis. It's purely psychological. Uh, it's in your head. Nothing more than that. And therefore, it's totally subjective. But is that really true? Secular psychologists say, yes, guilt is just a product of the, of the standards your family imposed on you or the standard society or our religion uh, has put on you. Others say guilt comes from your inability to adjust your expectations and your choices to reality. So guilt is just a maladjustment. You need to, therefore, adjust your expectations and your choices and your standards to reality. That's where guilt comes from. It's all just a feeling. It's subjective. Now, does that make any sense? Is that what's really happening? I talk to sophisticated, secular, modern people all the time in my profession. Uh, They don't believe in sin. They don't believe in hell. They uh, generally don't believe in God, at least not the biblical God. Uh, They say they're living in authentic freedom, uh, and they're creating their own reality. And yet deep deep down, they sometimes confide in me that they're waking up in the morning feeling ashamed 
Uh, we all have this voice inside of us, uh, and this voice is, is calling them a coward, or calling them a fool, or calling them a failure, uh, calling them even a sinner, making them feel guilty. What are you going to do with that little voice inside? Call it a complex? Call it pressure of life? You know, but when Lady Macbeth walked around shouting, out, out, damn spot, trying without success to wash this invisible spot of blood off her hands, or off her guilty, blood-stained hands, she bore witness to the fact that guilt is a feeling that my wrongdoings and my sins are more than just a feeling. Let's put that on the overhead, in fact. Uh, Guilt is a feeling that my wrongdoings are more than a feeling. Uh, That's what guilt is. The essence of feeling guilty is that my wrong is more than just a feeling. Guilt is this sense of, of moral accountability, that there's a sense of ultimate moral accounting in the universe. Guilt is the sense that my wrongs have created an objective record. Guilt is the sense that I should be paying for that record, uh, that I have to do something to deal with that record. Guilt is the sense that my sins have a being all of their own. Uh, Guilt is the sense that I need to suffer for what I've done. It's the sense that there is a moral accounting, a moral objective record. There's a damn spot an invisible spot that my wrongs have created that I can't wash out. So this feeling of guilt is a realization uh, that my guilt, my sense of wrongdoing, is more than just a feeling. That it's, There's something outside of me, something that has to be dealt with, something objective. You know, at the end of this amazing movie, one of my all-time favorite movies, uh, Schindler's List, uh, we have this amazing scene that, that epitomizes uh, this. You know, Schindler is this wealthy German industrialist in World War II. He has a change of heart, and he actually makes himself poor, using all of his wealth to bribe the German officials in order to rescue and save Jewish lives. He ends up saving 1,200 Jews. Now, true story. At the end of the movie, when the war is over, uh, he suddenly he looks at his car, and he realizes, if I had only sold my car, I could have saved ten more Jews. If only I sold this watch, I could have saved several more lives. If only I had used my, my power and my influence earlier on during the war, I could have saved many more lives, maybe hundreds more. And he falls to the ground under the weight of his guilt, and he weeps. Now, what are you going to say to him? Are you going to say, oh, well, Mr. Schindler, you just have to you know, adjust your expectations. Uh, get a grip on reality. Uh, your guilt is just subjective. Uh, your family raised you to believe it was wrong to commit genocide, you know, mass extermination against another race. That's why you have these guilt feelings. But you've got to extricate, extricate yourself from all of that. Readjust. Your guilt is only a feeling. Is that what you're going to say to him? Of course not. The fact remains there's a record. There's an ultimate moral accounting. Uh, The reality of which you have hardwired into your DNA, your spiritual DNA, uh, your conscience. So there's a damn spot that you can't get out. And you know deep down that one day 
you will have to pay for it. That's what guilt is. And just try to deny it or ignore it or get rid of it. Uh, try, to, try to say that it's nothing but, but subjective and relative. And you, know, you could convince yourself of that, but if you do, you'll turn yourself into a monster. That's what the psychopaths are. The theologian, I'll put this on the overhead as well, a, guy, a German theologian, Emil Brunner, uh, he put it this way. Guilt means that our past, that which can never be made good, always constitutes one element in our present situation. So what he's saying is that guilt is a sense uh, that our past is still present, meaning you can't get rid of your past. Uh, you can't change it. That's what guilt is, this sense that we can't make it good. You just try to suppress it or dismiss it or say it's all just subjective, it's not objectively grounded. You may succeed for a while, but your sins, like Arnold Schwarzenegger always says, I'll be back. <laughs> and they always come back. Because guilt is the feeling that our sins are more than just a feeling. Guilt is a feeling our sins have created an objective record of our lack of morality. Because we live in a moral universe that keeps account of our lives. The universe is not simply just made of wood and stone and metal and matter and atoms and, and, and physical nature. No. The universe is also made up of moral truth and moral values and moral principles. And these moral values are every bit as real as the physical universe. And if you violate them, you'll be knocking your soul against them every bit as devastatingly as you'd physically injure yourself by knocking your head against a brick wall. And therefore, the Bible says, not only are your guilty feelings not subjective, but that they have to do with an objective reality. Because God's opposition to our sin isn't a mere feeling. It's real. There's an objective reality about our guilt that creates a problem by the way, not only for us, but interestingly, also a problem for God himself. Let me say that again, because some of you gasped. <laughs> Our guilt isn't a pro only a problem for us. It's also the only real problem that God ever faced. Look at Romans 5 or 6, back in our text. Romans 5, 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Messiah died for the ungodly at the right time. What does that mean? You know, God is so powerful, he never has to wait for anything, right? When God says, by he or, let there be light, by he or, there was light, instantaneously. He didn't, he didn't have to say, okay, let's see what I need to do to go get some light, to, to make light. No. God's power is so absolute, so ultimate, that when he says, let there be light, there's light. Instantly, immediately. There's no wait. That's power. Because for God to merely intend something automatically brings it into being. That there be light, there was light. But God cannot say, let there be forgiveness, and there's forgiveness. Why do I say that? Because that's what the Bible says. Look at Leviticus 17.11. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. There's no forgiveness of sins. And Romans 5, 6 and Galatians 4, they say that Yeshua had to come when the time had fully arrived. 
at the right time, when the time had fully come. Look again, Romans 5, 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Messiah died for the ungodly. Yeshua had to die. Something had to be done to satisfy God's justice and to affect our forgiveness. God could not just say, I forgive you, and, and still remain and still be a just judge. You know, if an earthly judge just lets the criminals go, go free, he just, just forgives them, we declare him an unjust judge, and then we get rid of him. You know, we try to impeach him or recall him, right? Uh, so forgiveness is the only problem that the Almighty God has ever had. We would not have a moral universe without justice. And so our forgiveness must be affected in such a way that it simultaneously satisfies God's justice. And, the, and only the sacrificial, atoning death and resurrection of Yeshua accomplishes, accomplished this. There are moral laws built into the very fabric of the universe. Our sins, therefore, will face an accounting one day. Either Yeshua will pay for our guilt and our sins, or we will pay. But there will be an accounting. And our feelings of guilt is our innate sense that this accounting one day will indeed come. Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So our forgiveness, it must be paid for. And because God in his holiness cannot overlook sin and evil, we can have hope for the mending of our world. The brokenness of fallen creation one day will be over. One day evil will be eradicated forever. Hallelujah. Because God doesn't accept evil, we can have hope for this world one day. But because God doesn't accept evil, what hope do we have for ourselves? What are we going to do about our guilt? What what is God going to do? Which brings us to point number two. So put this on the overhead as well. How God deals with our guilt. So point number one is the feeling of guilt. That guilt has an objective reality to it. Uh, It's more than just a feeling. Uh, There's a moral accounting. Point number two, how does God deal with it? He deals with it through what's called the principle of self-substitution. In fact, this is the heart of the gospel. And it's right here in our text. Look again at Romans 5, 6. At just the right time, Messiah died for the ungodly. Self-substitution. He died for us. Yeshua died for us in our place. He substituted himself for us, taking on the wrath that we deserved. He took our place, dying the death that you and I should have died. The author, famous Christian author, John Stott, he he puts it like this, on the overhead we put it. He says, the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God. And the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. The essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God. What does that mean? What is the essence of sin? No, either you, you're just an accident, you're just a product of a mindless evolution with no purpose, or you were created by the creator God. And if you were created by God, you belong to him. And if you belong to him, you owe him everything. 
And so when you independently decide how you're going to live your life, uh, how you're going to spend your money, how you're going to use your body, how you're going to use what you consider your gifts and your talents, uh, and maybe think about God if you get in trouble and praying for help only in a time of crisis, that's the essence of sin. Unless you're willing to acknowledge his lordship over you, his ownership of your life, his authority over you, uh, if you're just living your own life with little of any reference to God, you're substituting yourself for him. And that self-substitution is the essence of sin. Because you're taking upon yourself the prerogatives that only God has. If you're not a policeman, for example, but you dress up like one and you act like one, uh, you'll be arrested, you'll be thrown in jail for impersonating an officer. Well, how much worse is it for you to dress up like God and act like him? Which is what you're doing when you try to take control of your own life and not acknowledge God's ownership over you and submit to his authority on your life. So the essence of sin is you substituting yourself for God. But the essence of salvation is God in Yeshua substituting himself for you. Look at John Stott again. He goes on to say this. Because we put ourselves only where God deserves to be, he put himself where only we deserve to be. On the cross. He died the death we should have died. In Yeshua, God himself came and took what we deserve. Basically, the universal law of moral accounting is still in effect. And it worked on Yeshua when he died in our place. He paid our debt. He suffered the Father's wrath that was rightfully due to us. Everything you know deep down that you deserve went to him. That's the biblical doctrine of of sacrificial substitutionary atonement, of of self-substitution. It's summed up in one verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, Yeshua, who had no sin, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's no more glorious truth in the whole universe. Indeed, 1 Peter 1.12 tells us that concerning this salvation, even the angels long to look into these things. Self-substitution. Uh, the self-substitution of Messiah for us, that's this glorious truth. And when we read about this concept in, in, in literature, for example, it's inherently so intense, so dramatic. Uh, there's a story about a man who, who lived alone with his family high up in the mountains. Uh, because he operated a train trestle over a mountain pass where there's a river running um, between the mountains. Well, one day he had opened the trestle he, uh, for, for the boats to pass through and then close it you know, for the trains uh, to cross the mountain. Once a day, every day he had to do this. But one day, to his horror, the trestle was left open and he heard this train coming with hundreds and hundreds of people on the train. Uh, and unless he rushed to close it, they would all plunge to their death in the river. So he rushes into the operating room. He begins to close the trestle, the bridge. But he looks down way below to the place where the gears were. And he sees his little son playing in the gears. And he calls out, but his son can't hear him. And he suddenly realizes 
Either his only son is going to die, or all those hundreds of people are going to die. And we're on the edge of our seat. Why? Because there's nothing more dramatic than that. Nothing more intense than that. Because that's the ultimate storyline of the universe. Right? John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have life everlasting. That's the ultimate demonstration of love, to die so that others, so that many may live. And so the father closes the trestle, causing his son to die so that the many would live. Romans 5, verse 7 and 8. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Messiah died for us. This moves us like nothing else, because this is the ultimate act of love, this self-sacrificial, other-oriented, altruistic, covenantal commitment uh, that one would die for another, or in Yeshua's case, that one would die for the many. Self-substitutionary, sacrificial atonement. That's how it happened. And unlike the story of the father and the train trestle, in the actual gospel, we don't have a heavenly father sending his innocent infant son into the gears, unwitting, unknowing, passive, unconsciously being crushed by the gears of the train trestle. No. Rather, the scriptures disclose that Yeshua himself, in an absolutely and totally free, voluntary act, consciously, intentionally, chose to substitute and sacrifice himself for you and for me. And that's the main point of Romans 5, 7, and 8. Look at it again, Romans 5, 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, but for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners... While we were powerless, while we were still his enemy, Messiah died for us. What does this mean? It means there was no obligation on him. There was no constraint that forced him to do this. The doctrine of the voluntary self-substitution of God is so precious and wonderful and the center of the gospel because it tells us that Yeshua is the only one who ever died and made his death a personal act. The only one who ever chose to die. No, wait a minute, David. What about all those who, who gave their lives throughout history in, in heroic action? Well, the difference is this. They chose the moment of their death. But only Yeshua chose the fact of his death. People who heroically died to protect others or defeat an enemy chose the moment of their death, but not the fact of their death. Because they were going to die anyways at some point, right? But Yeshua is the only person in all history who absolutely freely, without any constraint, walked in and poured out his life on the cross for no other reason other than his love for you and for me. That's the self-substitution of God. 
because we sinfully put ourselves only where he deserved to be, he put himself freely uh, and voluntarily where we deserved to be. And so as one theologian put it, it's in the sense that Yeshua walked into the cross, took his soul in one hand and his body in the other hand, and rent himself asunder for you and for me. As an absolutely free, personal act. Yeshua is the only one in all of history who ever used death. And because he died when it had no claim on him at all, he's the only one who ever chose the fact of his death. You know, because death is the executioner for sin. Because of guilt. But because Messiah, Yeshua, is the only one without sin, and therefore did not have to die, death had no claim on him. But he chose to voluntarily die. While we were yet sinners... No constraint on him. Well, we were powerless. And as a result, he paid it all. Because he chose to die when death had no claim on him, his death paid for our sins. And so we read in Romans 5.15, For if the many died by the trespass of one man, Adam, how much did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Yeshua, the Messiah, overflow to the many? Yes, people have died throughout history for their loved ones. But it's totally different. People dying for their loved ones are not really dying for them. They're only choosing the moment of their death and and thereby hopefully postponing the inevitable death of their loved ones. But they're not dying for their loved ones like Yeshua died for you. He chose the very fact of his death and he affected the result, therefore, that if we repent... And if we trust in him, we will never die. But we'll live with him forever in the resurrection of the new heavens and the new earth. Yeshua didn't have to die ever. But while we were sinners, while we were powerless, Yeshua freely, without constraint, ripped himself to pieces for you and for me, that we might live. And please don't miss the significance of what the text says here. It says, while we were yet sinners... Yeshua did all this for us. He didn't die for you because he saw some little teeny bit of merit uh, or goodness or righteousness way deep down inside of you. No, just the opposite. The scriptures say we're utterly dead in our trespasses and our sins. And the evil and the wickedness and the rebellion and the self-centeredness of our heart. So how do you know God loves you? Because Yeshua died for you even while you were his enemy. The cross demonstrates God's love. The cross stands as a permanent monument to God's love for you. Tim talked about the monuments today in his prayer. This, the cross is the permanent monument of God's love. Have you ever seen Mel Gibson's famous movie, The Passion of the Christ? Remember in the movie, the movie, the character of Barabbas, the, the thief, you know, who's set free instead of Yeshua, and how he's portrayed in the movie? Uh, I mean, he's this totally yucky guy. He, he's, he's disgusting, this kind of a low-life, cruel character. Uh, great actor. You know, he's portrayed in the most unlikable, as the most unlikable, you know, immoral, hard-hearted, evil, selfish, selfish, uh, creepy slime ball. It's like he, he was the essence of icky. <laughs> I mean, like, this guy is gross. <laughs> and they let that villain go 
this disgusting creature, go instead of Yeshua. Well, that's you. And that's me. That's us, if we're honest, in God's sight. That this criminal was let go, and Yeshua was crucified in his place. Well, that's you. That's me. We are Barabbas. That's the perfect picture of what Yeshua did for you and for me. While we were yet sinners, Messiah died for us. It's not like, you know, we've got a few problems here and there, need a little help. No, we are Barabbas. Compared to God's holiness, there's something utterly disgusting inside my heart. That's the truth. That's me. And yet Yeshua died for me. What incredible, unfathomable love. What is the value of what Yeshua did for you? We can't really fathom it. We can't fully comprehend it. It, it, It's um, absolute. It's infinite. It's unmeasurable. And therefore, if you meditate on it, it'll increase your love and appreciation uh, and gratitude and commitment and loyalty and obedience to him. Romans 5 is showing us the self-substitution of God on our behalf. At the right time, Messiah died for the ungodly. And that's how he deals with guilt. That's point number two. Uh, and put it in the overhead. Uh, guilt is this objective record we've got to deal with. That's uh, the feeling of guilt. Yeshua does this through an objective act. His death on the cross, that's the dealing of guilt. Which leads to our last point, point number three, the healing of guilt. Let's go back to our feelings for a minute. Uh, what do we have to do to use what God has done for us in our hearts so that we are finally healed from guilt and can live a guilt-free life? And if the truth be told, we all still have a tremendous amount of problems you know, applying this truth uh, to our life. You know, plenty of believers I know are still racked with guilt. You're not as healed of your guilt as you think you are. So how do we heal ourselves of our guilt? The scriptures in this text say there are two ways. Uh, In the overhead, uh, number one, you're healed of guilt to the degree you grasp the magnitude of your sin. And this is, by the way, the very opposite of what modern psychology teaches. The opposite. Modern psychology says you deal with your guilt by minimizing your sin. Uh, By stop, stop thinking about your sin. Uh, By deciding you're not a sinner, you're not so bad. But the gospel says it's the the exact opposite. It's the other way around. You only be healed of your guilt to the degree you're willing to deal with and recognize and acknowledge the magnitude of your sin. That's what the scriptures are saying here. Uh, We can be healed of our guilt only by owning uh, and admitting our sin. Look at Romans 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. And one of the things this means is that God's love is is demonstrable to the degree that we see we're sinners. That's one of the things this text is is, is saying. Paul's saying, look how loving God is. You were a sinner, and he died for you. So until you see you're a sinner... Yeshua's love isn't demonstrable. You really can't see it. And to the degree that you see you're a sinner, to that degree, Messiah's love becomes demonstrated, becomes demonstrable to you. 
the, the greater you see the nature of your sin, the more transformed you are when you actually get a hold of the cross. So the more galvanized you are by the love of God, the more transformed you are by the love of God, it's always based on the depth of your, of the, of your grasp of your own sin. So, for example, let's say you're here today, and you say, yeah, I know Yeshua died for me, uh, but this really has never, to be honest, this really has never changed my life. I'm basically still the same. If it's not radically transformed you, if today it is not something that you weep over when you think about all he's done for you, if it's not something that it thrills you and electrifies you and fills you with confidence and boldness, it's because you don't really know that you're a sinner. And therefore, you may not have been truly born again. Now, suppose someone says to me, David, I believe Messiah, I, mean, I believe Yeshua is the Messiah, that he's the son of God, even that he's God the son. Uh, I believe he, he died for our salvation and then rose again. But, but I've got no real conviction of, of sin. Okay, now what if I told him, this guy, don't worry about your sins. Yeshua paid for it all. Just receive God's payment and confess Yeshua and you'll be saved. And by the way, that's the common gospel preached in most pulpits today. But I want to tell you that's a travesty. And it's the root where the axe needs to be laid. If I would have preached uh, that watered-down version of the gospel to that guy... I would have been guilty of ministering false comfort to him and rushing him to a decision to pray a prayer of salvation when true conviction was absent. And therefore, deception would have been birthed into his life. He would have believed he was saved when he was really not. And that's what has been done with multitudes of sinners today. And it's why so, so few so-called converts continue to walk with the Lord and bear fruit after supposedly receiving Yeshua in their life. We think we can bypass the cross. Amen. And in doing so, we become guilty of preaching another gospel and leading many into deception. The problem with most people not having a sense of conviction is that they're in denial. They're resisting the Holy Spirit. Because he's pointing out their sin to them and they don't like it. They don't want to truly change. It's ultimately an issue of repentance and surrender. There's a destructive mindset in carnal, professing Christians and messianics today that's the root of this great deception and keeps them from truly surrendering to Yeshua. Because they deep down, subconsciously, they believe there can be no real enjoyment in life if they would actually stop sinning and stop pursuing carnal pleasures. Because they honestly believe that life would just be a killjoy if they actually repented. But they don't realize that the person who's truly repented has no desire to sin. And that the grace of God changes your desires and empowers you to live for the Lord. Because it's an inward transformation. That's the miracle of salvation. Once truly saved, serving Yeshua becomes a great joy to the earnest believer. 
And it only comes about from preaching and from embracing the cross. Because that alone results in true regeneration. And once regenerated, the true believer isn't unhappy at avoiding the the sinful things that he used to love. Because he's now changed his heart's desires away from such things. The spirit of repentance is the mystic ingredient in the body of Messiah in America today. And until it's restored, there will be no revival. So as we approach the high holy days, we need to pray for a spirit of conviction of our sins. What makes God's love demonstrable, what makes it real, is the realization that he died for you while you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And the more you see that, the more God's love is real to you. It's palpable. It's dazzling and overwhelming and humbling. Remember when Yeshua, he was in the house of, of Simon the Pharisee? And this prostitute comes and, and kneels at his, at his feet, uh, at, at Yeshua's feet in repentance. And, and she wipes his feet with her tears. And Simon, he's indignant, right? He's indignant that Yeshua would allow such a woman to touch him. And so Yeshua tells him this little story. Look at the Luke seven forty one. Yeshua says, two people both owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of them both. Now, which of them would love him more? Luke seven forty three. Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've answered correctly, Yeshua said. Because who has been forgiven much loves much. This is the glory and the uniqueness of the gospel. What Yeshua is saying? He's saying, Simon, you like me, but she loves me. And you know why, Simon? Because you think your sins are little, but she knows that her sins are great. And therefore, she rejoices at my salvation and my forgiveness, and you don't. The reason you're not galvanized and enraptured and transformed by my gospel, Simon, is because you don't know what a sinner you are. You don't know it, Simon. You won't admit it. Yeshua's death on the cross, if you understand what it it really accomplished for you, and if you cling to it and submit to it, it will fill you with joy and wonder and elation. It will fill you with gratitude and thanksgiving. It will fill you with dedication and service and love and loyalty and commitment. If you've truly embraced Yeshua, you will now glory in the cross. The cross shows how much Yeshua loves you how much, and how much you will love him in return. Why? Because he who has forgiven, he's been forgiven much loves much. You know, in my experience, when we enter into worship, the people who worship best are those who, when they enter into time of worship, their whole life flashes before them, and they glimpse the depth of their sin, and they see all their sins nailed to the cross, and they cry out in tearful thanksgiving and brokenness and inexpressible joy 
to Yeshua, their Savior, the lover of their soul. So finally, number one, the heel of guilt upon the overhead, please, to the degree that you're willing to admit your sin. And then finally, number two, you're healed of your guilt by continually gazing at what Yeshua did for you on the cross. Look at Romans 5, verse 9. Since we've now been justified by Messiah's blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? Difficult verse. I think what Paul is saying here is that the fact that the moment you believe, the moment you're justified and made just in God's sight, what's a justified means, you're made just in his sight, righteous in his sight, despite you being ungodly and powerless and his enemy, Paul's saying God has already done the hard thing on the cross. So how much more will you be saved from God's wrath when it's finally poured out on humanity on Judgment Day? That's what he's saying. He's saying if you're justified by his blood now, when you're his enemy, how much more will you be saved from the wrath to come on Judgment Day when you're now his friend? Paul's saying the hardest thing has passed. The biggest thing has passed. The moment you believe uh, and you're you're justified by his blood, you are as loved as you ever will be. God loves you perfectly. Five billion years from now, when you are absolutely clean and pure and radiant, he will not love you any more than he loves you the minute you're saved, the minute you repent and put your saving trust in him. And that realization will heal you of your guilt. The doctrine of the cross is like the sun and the stars. When the sun is shining, you can't see all the stars, right? Why not? Because they're covered by the glory of the sun. And when you understand what Yeshua did on the cross, it shines out in your life, and it outshines, and it covers all your innumerable sins. They're covered by the cross. The healing of your guilt is accomplished when you gaze at the cross and meditate on what Yeshua has done for you. And you no longer think that you need to, that you can pay for your own sins. You no longer look at Yeshua's work on the cross as just like a little piece of butter. And your sins, this great big piece of bread, and this doesn't quite cover it. No. Repent for thinking so little of what Yeshua has done for you. Repent for doubting that in him all your sins are washed whiter than snow. In John Bunyan's famous Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is the name of the main character, and he's journeying to the celestial city. But he has this huge burden on his back of all his sins and guilt, and he's trying to get rid of it. And Mr. Legality tells him to climb the mountain of morality to get rid of his burden. Uh, but the higher he climbs, uh, the worse, and, and to tip that down a minute, we'll get to it. Uh, the higher he climbs, the worse and heavier his burden becomes. And so it, climbing this mountain of morality d- doesn't work. Uh, it just makes his burden heavier and heavier. But finally he comes to this hill. At the top of the hill is, the, is a cross. At the bottom of the hill is a grave. And as he fixes his eyes steadfastly on the cross, his burden falls off. And it rolls into the grave. And it's gone forever. And he says, he kept looking at the cross. And he's just amazed. Uh, And the text says this in the overhead now. The text says just that looking at the cross, he's amazed that just looking at the cross would have loosened his burden. And the more and more he looked, the more he understood. Until it says, 
the springs in his head were loosened, and tears gushed down his face. And he gave three jumps for joy, and he sang, Blessed grave, blessed cross, blessed rather be, the one there put to shame for me. My brothers and sisters of Etzchayim, keep looking at the cross. Keep looking until the springs of your head are loosed and tears gush down your face and you leap for joy at all that God has done for you. And that is the healing of your guilt. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's stand and pray. Have the music team to come on up, please. Hallelujah. Oh, we thank you, Father, for this glorious day. We thank you, Lord, for the cross. We are not ashamed of the cross. The cross of Yeshua, the Messiah. Lord, help us to embrace your cross. Uh, and give us both the tears and the joy that come from knowing and appreciating we've been justified by your blood. The blood of God, freely shed for us. Even while we were yet sinners and powerless and your enemy. That you died for us, Lord. You demonstrated your amazing love and grace for us. And that while we were yet sinners, far from you, bound for hell, you reached down and you rescued us and you redeemed us and you died for us. We were ungodly and rebellious, lovers only of self, but you justified us by your blood. And you gave us new life in you, Lord. You put your spirit in us, hallelujah. And you wrote your law on our hearts. And you transformed us from the inside out and made us new creations in you. Thank you, Lord, that we now have peace with you, as your text says. The war is over. And and we have access to your very presence, you tell us, because the veil has been torn down. So we now have confidence to enter into the Holy of Holies itself by the blood of Messiah, by this new and living way you've opened for us through the veil, through your body, the body of you, Yeshua, our great high priest. And so we now draw near to you, Lord, with a sincere heart and with full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from a guilty conscience and our sins wiped away. Hallelujah. Praise your name, Lord. Praise your holy name, because for it's in your name we pray. Amen. Shabbat shalom.